You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. What about after Jesus died on the cross and now has new life and has eternal life and now he is in heaven? Don't people go straight to heaven after Jesus died on the cross? So that whole death being final thing wasn't that amended by Jesus at the cross. And now, the moment we die, we get to go be seated with Jesus in the clouds of heaven. And Okay, what I want to do is take you to a Bible passage. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to talk about that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 13 to set up the context. But while we're looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's play a little game of a quiz. Who wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians? The Apostle Paul. Was it written before or after Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven? After. So he's speaking New Testament believers in the light of Christ's resurrected life, right? So while Christ is in heaven, after his ascension, and of course death and everything like this, this is the context in which he's speaking about the very topic we're discussing today. Now look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. He says, I do not want you to be what? Ignorant. ignorant. Now is that a pejorative term? Of course not. He, doesn't, he isn't trying to be insulting. He's saying, I don't want you to not know. I want you to know. I want you to be knowledgeable. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have what? Fallen asleep. Now, as we've covered before, the repeated Old Testament and New Testament description of the experience of death is like going to sleep. So when he says those who have fallen asleep, what is he referring to? People who have died, just like Lazarus. He sleeps, but the reality is he is dead. Okay? Now, lest you sorrow as others who have no what? Hope. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with Christians sorrowing when a loved one dies. That's normal. That's natural. It would be odd if you didn't. But there's a type of sorrow that still has on the other end of it a hope of something else in the future, right? He says, I don't want you to have that view of death where there is no light at the end of the tunnel, right? He said, I want you to understand this so you can sorrow correctly. Goes on to explain. For, now I want you to watch this very closely in verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do we believe that Jesus died and rose again? Yes, yes indeed. Even so, stop right there. What does that mean, even so? Also, in like manner, likewise, you also, right? So just as Jesus died, was buried, slept in the tomb over the Sabbath, and then came to life on the first day, he said, even so, likewise, in the same manner, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, people will look at that passage and say, ah, see, God's going to bring with him. That means they're up there with him, and he's going to bring them back. But the passage makes that clear that what he's talking about is the experience that Jesus had where he died, he was buried, 
Then he was resurrected. He said, even so, that is likewise, in like manner, you also, though you may die and be buried, will also be resurrected. So Jesus is the pattern of our death and resurrection when we put our life in his hands. Does that make sense? Okay. And then he goes on to explain it even more clearly. Verse 15. For this we say to you by whose authority? By the word of the Lord. Notice he didn't say, this is my speculation. I think it's going to be like this. I hope it's going to... No, he says, I know it because who said it? The Lord himself. Jesus said it. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now, if all we had, you could say, well, maybe that means they've already gone on ahead. But look at the next passage. He's very clear. He's methodically breaking down these potential misconceptions, right? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So I know this is very rudimentary, but Jesus is where now? In heaven. And when he comes back, he's coming from heaven, right? So he's in heaven coming from heaven, and when he returns, is it going to be secret and quiet? No, no. no we talked about it yesterday. It's going to be visible, literal, audible, global. Nobody's going to miss it, right? And according to this passage, it emphasizes the voice. Notice this doesn't have the lightning flashing thing, because that's not the burden. He's not trying to prove that every eye will see him. He's trying to hear that even the dead will hear him. Because look at the passage again. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. And how's he going to come with he from heaven? With a shout. So he's not coming quietly. His whole purpose is to come real loud. The first funeral I ever attended was for my great uncle Bill. I had to be all of maybe five years old or something, six. I had never witnessed death before. It was very unnerving. And it looked like he was asleep. And, I, and we went to the viewing and the funeral and stuff, and I, I was really troubled because I, I asked, I was so, and I, I, was, I, I was chicken, and I would have been embarrassed, but I, I just thought, has anyone tried yelling really loud? You know, like has anyone, has it even dawned on anybody to try? You know, I didn't know if they're like, well, who knows, let's put him in the ground. No, I didn't know they had checked and he was legitimately dead. But my thing, what, my comprehension was he's asleep, Someone should shout. <laughs> and I was so tempted to go to the casket and be, Uncle Bill! <laughs> Just see what would happen. You know? But someday, Jesus is going to do that. He's going to come from heaven and shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and what will happen, and the dead in Christ will what? Rise first. Now, let's think about logistics. He came from heaven. He descended from heaven. And the dead in Christ will do what? Right. It doesn't say they will descend as well to join him. They are sleeping. Their experience is that of sleep in the grave. And they will awake and arise when Christ commands life into them again. 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now this is an important point that we come from skim by, but look at the next few words. And thus, that means in this way, we shall always be with the Lord. What is the only way the living or the dead will get to be with the Lord? It's when he comes again and commands life and takes up those who are still alive and we reunion in the air, right? That's how we get to be with the Lord forever. Until then, according to this New Testament passage, after the resurrection of Jesus, even those in the faith go through the experience of death like a sleep and remain there until Christ wakes them up at the resurrection. Are we clear? And and interestingly, that's exactly, if you go back to verse 13, why he was writing. He said, I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Because there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. So he said, I'm going to walk it through very clearly. (laughs) Jesus died and he resurrected in the same way we're going to have this same experience. When Jesus comes and he just walks it through. So patently clear. Yes, ma'am. I would amend that and say it'll come back in a better body. Because even if I were to die right now, which I don't want to do, I would hope that this is not my forever. I mean, I can, I'm, I'm due for an upgrade. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, um, and, and the, by the way, that's, that's the promise of Scripture, is not that we, what's the, what's the thing we get new at the second coming of Jesus? Yeah, it's not a new character. Our love for the Lord will pick up right where we left off, our, our thoughts and our, you know, those kind of things. But the confines of this fallen, broken, you know, what Paul said, this wretched man that I, you know, is like, we're going to get a better one of those. You may. Yeah, yeah, the old you is going to look like the, yeah, that, that's no good. Yeah. I trust that the Lord will help you sing. Amen. Amen. I mean, by the way, if we just start letting our mind wander about how awesome heaven's going to be, we could take the next two hours, and I would love it. But I start thinking, like, what about travel? What about experiences? What about knowledge? I want to understand light. I know you don't care. You just want to sing. <laughs> but I want to study. And other people want to travel. And I want to have relationships. I want to meet people. I mean, I don't know. But praise the Lord, we've got our... T- How about we spend the first thousand years singing, the next thousand years studying, and then we've got... Pff, I mean, we can't even fathom it. Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, thank you. Look at the text where it says, well, verse 14, that very text, okay? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so time out right there, what do we understand about the death and resurrection of Jesus? He was living, he died, he was buried, and then he rose again, okay? He said, that becomes the template for our experience. Because watch this. Again, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, comma, and here's the critical two words, even so, which is another term for in like manner, in the same way, right? So that pattern is what we will all have when we have faith in Jesus Christ. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So you could, if that's all you had, you could say, Would it, that sounds like he's bringing with them from heaven. But Jesus didn't come from heaven when he arose. Where did he come from? The grave. He will bring from the grave, just like Jesus was brought forth from the grave. See what I'm saying? And then he goes on to clarify, 
Jesus descends from heaven, but he will bring from the grave, right, those who have dead. So all throughout this passage, the bringing is bringing back to life from the grave, not bringing down to earth from heaven. See what I'm saying? But if you only had that phrase, you could say, oh, it could be read wrongly, but Paul buttresses it with clarifying help. Yeah, no problem. I was told that convert back spirit. Exactly. That's the help. That's the beautiful thing about the Bible is that you can clarify. Like, you ever seen a line of fence posts? Okay, I mean, let's take the most famous one that we talked about yesterday, Luke 23, 43, where Jesus says to the thief on the cross, is it today you will be with me in paradise? Or is he say, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, that text could be read one way or the other, right? So how do we resolve a text that could be misunderstood? Read all the other ones, right? Like a line of fence post. You have a loose fence post. You don't say, well, I like it over here. Well, I have always had it over here. I don't care what you like or what you're used to. What is correct? And so how do you find out what's correct? To be clear, I don't want to be so callous. I don't care what you think. But the reality for all of us, it doesn't matter what my opinion or my inclination or my preference might be. I need to know what does the Lord teach, right? So what you do is you say, I don't know on this. I mean, let me reserve judgment. Put a pin in it for a minute. Study this out, and I see that that scripture says this, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. So I got 15 lines of fence posts, and that one that could be read one or the other, and it determines where to place that understanding, not my personal preference. Are we clear? Okay. So that's what you do with difficult Bible passages, because clearly there are passages that are, could be read one way or the other, or could be misunderstood. So what you do is don't just take the... And this is one of the common things I see, sometimes even in Seventh-day Adventist Church, but in Christianity, they'll take a passage out of its context and then build a whole idea that might be outside of the fence line of Scripture, right? And then become attached to that thing. And then Scripture comes along and corrects it, and now it creates a tear, like, oh, I liked it over there. (laughs) I know. But that's why we want to make sure that whatever we believe it's based on a thus saith the Lord and not my own personal preference. Okay? Which I would then up the ante and say, if God is truly good, his way is going to be better than whatever my way was anyway. Right? It's not like, oh, I had a good idea, but then I had to go with God's. Are you kidding me? His way's better. You see what I'm saying? It's a pretty simple principle, but it's, uh, we don't have to off- always operate that way. Well, let's keep going. All right, now. The two most common objections, I want to hit that, and then we're going to get into other things. Okay? The first one is that what you were just articulating there. I had been taught that God, when I death, then you've got this soul that exists outside of myself, and it is inherently immortal. So that, by the way, here's where the death misconception runs right into The hell misconception. Because if there is a naturally or inherently immortal soul inside of me, then even God can't kill it. He can only hurt it. Do you see what I'm saying? So what if you do have an immortal soul that God can't even kill, but it certainly can't be in heaven with all the saints? You have to do something with it. And then you get all these concepts like, well, there, maybe there's a, 
a place called purgatory or spirit prison or unburning. And then you have this idea that, well, now we have eternal conscious torment. And people are like, man, that doesn't sound anything like God. Praise the Lord, it's not anything like God. It's not taught in His Word. It's one of those... By the way, as we were talking during the break, there's only one being in the Bible who promised everyone who said, we don't die. Who was that? That was Satan, remember? Way back in that Genesis account, Genesis chapter 3, God said, if you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. If you sin, the wage of sin is death, and that's what happened. Satan comes along and said, no, you will not surely die. In fact, you will be like God, because God doesn't die. Now we become peers with Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And so he might be able to out, you know, Smart me and outthink me and outpower me, but he can't outlive me. And friends, that's messed up. Another theological term for heresy, but messed up. Satan has brought about these notions, these misconceptions that are the headwaters of much heartache in our world. Sister, go ahead. I would be delighted to. Thank you. John chapter 3, verse 16 is perhaps the most famous and at the same time most misunderstood passage in the Bible. You can look it up if you want to, but I'm guessing we could say it from heart. <laughs> For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have... Pause right there. What are our two options? Perish, which is another word for die, or have... Notice that everlasting life is only one of the options. The other option is not life or death. But you know how much of the Christian world reads that and say, oh, you'll have everlasting life or everlasting life. They're like, see, it says it right there. No, it says exactly the opposite of that. But there's an idea, like that fence post thing, they built an idea outside of Scripture, and it becomes so attached to that, when you do see the light of Scripture, oh, that hurts. Yeah, I know. You know, that, you know it's easier to build a house than to remodel one? Anybody ever remodeled a house? <laughs> yeah, I have. Ugh. You have to go back. You think, oh, I'm just going to do this real quick, but you see, that's attached, that's attached. Oh, and they didn't build that square. Oh, and it's the off. Oh, and they did and uh, then why'd they put the plumbing in the wire? <laughs> I wish you could just build this thing from the ground up and do it right. Right? That's one of the great challenges in our work of evangelism. Is, there's, is the unlearning, not just the learning. That the new necessitates a corrective of the old. And so the Bible is a great thing. If you just start with a clean slate, you never, like for instance, you never run into the concept of the immortal soul if you're just reading the Bible. You know why? It's not there. There is no passage in Scripture that talks about the immortal soul. The term is not in Scripture at all. Nor is the concept in Scripture. There isn't one. However, the Bible explicitly says the other, the other way. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, 
it extols God, praises him, and it says, God is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has, what? Immortality. The Bible says the exact opposite. is that There's only one who is truly, inherently immortal, and who is that? God himself, not us. God is immortal. We aren't. By the way, every time you see mention of our immortality, it's always a gift from God that he gives us at the second coming. It's like clothing that we put on. It's not something we have. It's a gift he gives. For the wages of sin is, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Do you understand what I'm saying? That every time eternal life is mentioned for humanity, it's always in the context of getting it from God as a gift, not having it of our own inherently. Every time. So this is a non-biblical concept that has somehow pervaded even the Christian world. And the Bible is the corrective of that. Anyway, now that we know what death is, we need to talk about this life because the, the eternal life or the resurrection life. Because we kind of hit on it in, Revel, in Daniel chapter 12. I know we've been going through a lot of passages somewhat very quickly. I'm trying to do my best to be comprehensive and at the same time clear. So sometimes we speed up, sometimes we slow down. But if you recall, in Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, And at that time Michael shall stand up. And he refers to some being, uh, and many who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it's not just referring to all the good guys wake up, right? It refers to two different sets of experiences there, okay? In fact, in the New Testament, let's go to John chapter 5, we see Jesus himself refer to this dual or two different experiences in the resurrection, okay? Thank you, sir. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Now notice how this harmonizes perfectly with what we just read, Paul's explanation of the resurrection in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But here in John chapter 5, we'll go to verse 28, he says, Do not marvel at this. Okay, so we shouldn't marvel at this. This is not some outstanding crazy thought. This, he said, was basic Christianity. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the what? Graves will hear his voice. Have we already seen that in 1 Thessalonians? Absolutely. Those who sleep, will, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise. Okay? So this is not a marvelous thing. John teach, Jesus himself is teaching it here in the Gospel of John. For the hour is coming which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. But then he clarifies those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Interesting. So Jesus spoke about two different resurrections. One for the righteous, and one for the wicked. Do we see that from Jesus himself in John chapter 5? That all who die are going to rise again. 
but there's the resurrection of the righteous and there's the resurrection of the wicked. Okay? So now we're getting a little bit more detailed about the waking up part of death. The resurrection. Okay? To help us understand this a little bit more clearly, let's go to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 20. And while we turn to Revelation chapter 20, let's put together, let's synthesize all that we've seen here so far. Again, life is simply the combination of the dust of the ground animated by God's life-giving spirit, his breath, gives a man, makes a man, I should say, a soul. But when death comes, that creation is undone, the body goes back to the dust, the breath returns to God, and we simply aren't anymore until Christ wakes us up with that same life-giving power. The experience of death, the Bible consistently compares it to what? Sleep. Okay? So the dead, it will be like they're asleep. But they're not actually asleep, they're dead. It just seems like they're asleep. Okay, that's why I made that distinction earlier. Now, praise the Lord, there is the promise of a resurrection. Now, we don't often talk about this part, but the resurrection isn't just for the righteous. There's a resurrection of the wicked as well. So, it is good news that everyone will resurrect. But it doesn't necessarily bode well for the experience. Well, let's continue. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Now, Revelation chapter 20 picks up the story after Jesus has returned, after the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ rise first, right? So let's think about the second coming of Jesus, which we looked at yesterday, in the concept of the resurrection. Now, will there be righteous people living when Jesus comes again? Yes. What will happen to them at the second coming? According to scripture, they will rise up, right? Will there be righteous people who have died before Jesus comes that will wake up at his second coming? Yes, right? And the dead in Christ rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. So all of the righteous people, whether they are living or had been dead, will be brought up or caught up, as the scripture says, to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. Yes? I know this is so basic, but I don't want you to be lost here. I mean, big picture lost, but I mean just lost in the conversation. <laughs> That's what happens. Let's talk about the experience of the wicked at the second coming of Jesus. For instance, if you're a genuine believer in Jesus, are you looking forward to the second coming? Absolutely. It, the Bible calls it the great hope, right? It's the thing we're looking forward to. Isaiah talks about those people who say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Amen, right? What does the Bible say the wicked will be saying when Christ returns? Hide me, right? From the face of him who sits and, and let, us, let the rocks and mountains fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. So is the coming of Jesus to the living wicked good news? No, it's just a fact. It's reality, but it's not their hope. See what I'm saying? So when Jesus comes, 
By the way, the same book of Thessalonians talks about how they'll be destroyed at the brightness of his coming. So what happens to the wicked when Jesus comes? The second time. The wicked who are alive will be destroyed, and the wicked who were dead just stay dead. But wait a minute, doesn't the Bible say that there will be a resurrection? Yes. Let's get there. Let's, let's walk it through. Let's walk it through. Walk it through. I'm on a very defensive posture, I know, but here we go. Let's walk it through. All right, in the beginning, God created... No, <laughs> okay. All right, let's... And I know this for some people, like, why are we breaking it down so simply? Because this is where we are. we got to think it through, okay? When Jesus comes back, shwa, comes through the clouds, all the hosts of heaven, the great power and glory, you know, it's wonderful. And those who are dead in Christ will hear that voice and come out of the graves. Amen. And those who are alive and remain will be caught up. Amen. So all the righteous are gathered with Christ in the air. Amen. Okay. Now let's go over to the wicked. The wicked see Jesus coming. Who? Oh no. Right. They turn away. They say, hide us from the face. Let the rocks and mountains fall on us. Right? And the Bible says they are destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Have you ever thought about that, by the way? That if Jesus were to show up now, like remember when Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. God's like, oh, I know you mean well, but <laughs> if I were to show up just raw, unadulterated glory, that's not the best thing for you. <laughs> He's like, what I can do is I'll, you can come close-ish and I'll let you, but, but he said, no man can see my face and what? Live. By the way, in Revelation, they said, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. It, what, what an odd turn of phrase, the wrath of the lamb. Have you ever seen a lamb? I wouldn't say like, man, I saw this animal today. It's full of wrath. It was a lamb. But that's talking about his character, his holiness, his purity, his righteousness cannot sustain the wickedness of fallen man unrepentant, unforgiven, unconsecrated, unsanctified man will be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Yes? Even Moses, right? And even the secondary shiny was too much for the other people. You know, So we sometimes just like, oh, I'd love to see Jesus. Like, slow down. That's why the sanctuary had filters. He was the most holy place, but everybody could go in there. And then the holy place. So the sinners in the camp, and you had to come in the court, because you can't, God wants to be close, but not so close he'd kill us. And when the wicked who have clung to that sin encounter the face of Jesus, according to Scripture, they're destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Now, they have a little reunion, but not knowingly. They're going to be gathered together in the grave. So all the wicked are collected in the graves and all the righteous are collected in the clouds. What is the condition of the earth then? It is desolate. It is just empty. It's 
a wasteland, right? This is where Revelation 20 picks up. Go to verse 1. It says, then I saw, and then it's, the, the then is after Revelation 19 describes the coming of Jesus and the destruction of the wicked. That's what's described in very graphic detail in Revelation 19. Then Revelation 20, by the way, we think about this sometimes as seven we just we're so short-sighted sometimes, and we don't mean to be, but we look at the second coming, oh good, when Jesus comes again, then it'll all be over. Uh, nope. Because <laughs> look what the Bible says here. Then, verse 1 of Revelation 20, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, which is the earth now, desolate, out of all the righteous being taken away and the wicked being wiped out, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and now you think, finally, the devil's going to die. But what's the chain for? Just to bind him, right? And bound him for how long? Have you ever thought about the craziness of this? All the wicked are destroyed except for Satan. Like, why does he get to live? By the way, that's the great question, the great controversy. If God saw in his heart, if you weren't in Dave Fiedler's presentation, you missed out. <laughs> but if God saw in his heart from the very beginning, why did you just squish him out? Let me give you just a 20-second illustration of this, okay? Let's say that there were a day before this world was created, before anything, but Satan was, Lucifer was still Lucifer, right? Before he had made his stand or whatever. But in his heart, he was already fomenting the rebellion. Like it, but it was all on the inside. If you read Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, you notice that it said, For you have said, in your heart, I will ascend, I will ascend. But it's not like he was walking around heaven saying, Guys, let me tell you something, I should be running this place. I am good as God. You should be worshiping. No. Nobody likes that now and we're all fallen. <laughs> that would not have gone over well in heaven. So the only way to, you know, promote yourself is to look like you're being humble and sweet and still supporting. So he says in his heart, I will ascend. I will exalt. I will sit. I will be like the Most High. Now, of the very, very many differences between created beings and the Creator, one of the key ones is that He can read your thoughts and mind, your motives, your intents, your character. I can only see what's on the outside. You know, you may be thinking some things about me right now <laughs> that I don't know. And do not raise your hand. This is not a testimony. It's like, I got one. Stop. I know. But we have an internal consciousness. We think things without necessarily expressing them, right? Now, I've seen some people who don't have that filter. But generally, right, what's going on on the inside, you choose what comes out on the outside. So it's not like Satan was running around like uh, expressing these things. The Bible repeatedly says, for in your heart you have said, right? And imagine one day, all the hosts of heaven, let's say it was the Sabbath day in heaven, and they're all singing the doxology, praise God from whom, and you've got the cherubim and the seraphim, and you've got Gabriel and Lucifer, and you've got all the, unf I, mean, I don't know what all's up, you know, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, whatever the whole scene is, right? 
And they're all, and Jesus can not only see to you, he can see through you. Right? So he knows what you're really seeing it on the outside is what's really on the inside. And his eye sweeps all of heaven, and he's like, oh, it's like translucent glass. It's like transparent as pure gold. It's, it's beautiful. Everyone means it. Until he gets to Lucifer. And though he's the one leading the songs, praise God from, in his heart, the scripture tells us, he's all, another theological term, but he's all jealous, envy. The Bible even says there was violence within. But what's he going to do? Be like, stick him up. A fistfight against God is going to be ugly. You're going to lose fast and hard. Right? So he's got to keep playing the role. But what if on that day, in that setting, God were to see the sin in his heart and say, everybody stop singing. Lucifer, I need you to step forward. You know he's still pretending. He's like, oh, do you want another verse? Shall we sing it again higher, everyone? And he's like, stop. I have seen in your heart and iniquity has been found in you. And furthermore, the wages of sin is death. And let's say that God executed justice. By the way, would he be correct in his analysis? Sure. Would his verdict be correct? Sure. Wait, 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 wait. Let me finish my story. We've gotten us this far. We're going to get to the end. He says, come over here, the wages of sin is death. And right there, in front of everybody, he does what we just described. Takes back the breath and the lifeless body. It's just laying there on the streets of gold. And in that silence would have been just about like this, right? If in that moment, the Lord stepped over his body, and says, all right, where were we? Everyone sing. Praise God from whom? Would they sing? Come on, you know people. Would they sing? No. They better. <laughs> like, well, I don't want to. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, but it'd be more like, praise God from <laughs> Right. But at some point, someone would probably have the courage to be like, ah. Uh. He's like, oh, yes, and you in the back. You have a question? Yeah, I don't understand. What? What? I mean, what? How's the? I mean, but why? Yeah, wow. And he's like, "Oh, you mean the Lucifer thing?" He's like, "Yes, the Lucifer thing." What? What is that? And what if God's answer to their question was, "Don't worry about that. I was right. Now let's sing." Friends, in the great controversy, it's just as important to be seen as right as it is to be right. Do you understand what I'm saying? Would God have been just and in every right to destroy Satan the minute he rebelled? Yes. But what would have happened? It would have killed that rebel, but it would not have ended the rebellion. 
In fact, he could be viewed as a martyr for the cause of freedom. Just like Brother Dave said this morning, God could explain and explain and explain, but sometimes words just aren't enough. He says, in order for you to be truly faithful to me out of love, you need to see the process. It's just as important to be seen as right as it is to be right. God understands that. So why didn't he kill him at the very beginning? Because it wouldn't have worked. And as he alluded to, we've got a whole sermon series, but there's four steps where God could have killed Satan, but he's like, nope, not yet. Nope, not yet. And you would think, well, surely at the second coming, right? I mean, all the righteous are gathered and the wicked are in their grave. Let's just end Satan and be done with this thing. But as Seventh-day Adventists, we've got a difficult thing to explain if we don't understand it clearly. Why would God destroy the wicked only to wake them up again and then kill them again? There better be a good reason. And I mean a good reason for that to happen. Now, we're watching our time very closely. Okay, then if you're sure I'm going to talk about it, let me talk about it. And if I don't get there, you can correct me. All right. I just want to make sure we get through what we're talking about. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 20. So Satan here is not destroyed even at the second coming. It says here, verse 3, And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Now, I do like that part. <laughs> and set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now, let's use a little logic. Why could he deceive the nations no more? Because there's nobody there, right? The wicked are dead and the righteous are gone. So he's bound by this chain of circumstances, this desolate, bottomless pit of a destroyed, you know, damaged world here. And he's just stuck. But it said he should deceive the nations no more till what time? The thousand years were finished. Now that strongly implies that there will be some people to tempt a thousand years from now. But for right now, he's just in a penalty box, just waiting it out, thinking it through. But it says, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now notice it didn't say he will be. The Bible says he must be. In God's plan, it is necessary for Satan and the wicked to be assembled one last time at the end of the thousand years. It's a necessity according to the Bible. That's a weird concept, but let's think it through. Now, what happens during this thousand-year period with the righteous? It goes on to say, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. I don't know if how many of you are cool with that idea, but it's right there in the Bible, and we've got to wrestle with it. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Who is them? The righteous redeemed, as it goes on to explain. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So these are the redeemed from the earth 
who are now given a work with Christ of judgment. But the rest of the dead, that would be the wicked, right, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So are the wicked going to have a resurrection? Yes, but it's not at the beginning of the thousand years, it's at the end of the thousand years. Okay? That's why Jesus spoke about one to the resurrection of righteousness and the other to the... There's two different resurrections. Both are going to have one resurrection experience, but there's a time difference. But the rest of the dead did not live again, verse 5, until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection, right? So this first resurrection, this is the one where the righteous might be dead by, you know, just old age or disease or maybe even martyrdom. But praise the Lord, they can be given new life. He said, that's the first resurrection. Praise the Lord. Blessed and holy is he who has part in that first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. By the way, just to clarify, the only difference between first death and second death is first death you wake up from. Second death is permanent. Right? It's not like one's kind of half dead and one's really dead. They're both dead, but Christ raises everyone the first resurrection. But there's a second death that you want to avoid because you don't have a resurrection to follow. That's the difference. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. This one is difficult. Because, for instance, what are they judging? What's left to judge? Hasn't the Lord determined who's righteous and wicked and who's saved and who's lost? Who's the sheep and the goats? Because didn't we see when the Jesus comes again that he says, and my reward is with me? Okay, so the wicked get the reward of death, the wages of sin is death, and the righteous get the life that was promised. So what's there left to decide? Let me tell you something that I think we sometimes unintentionally do in the Seventh Adventist Church. We are so powerfully and passionately, clearly opposed as the Bible tells us, thank goodness, to this idea of eternal conscious torment of the wicked. That God's going to put them in a place and keep them alive and hurt them but never kill them. That is foreign to Scripture. It's opposed to the character of God and it simply is not true. Amen. But in our denunciation of that falsehood, we sometimes accidentally promote the idea that there basically is no destruction of the wicked. It'll be instantaneous and painless and... Ah, not that either. It was Jesus himself who said, some will be beaten with many stripes and some with less. That there's a... It's not going to be one... See, one, obviously the biggest problem with the, the, the concept of hell, and I know people want to rush and say, yes, it's against the character of God. It is against the character of God, but let me be clear, if I can be. God is love, right? 
but it's love as the Bible defines it, not as the world defines it. So we look at things and say, oh, this is what love would do, so God must allow this. No, God gets to set the terms of what love entails. My son would probably think it's not very loving of me to discipline him when he's naughty. But it is loving of me because I'm fixing him. (laughs) He just doesn't know it yet, right? But from his perspective, he could say, oh, that's not love. You don't know what love is. I know what love is. I get, to, I get to define the terms, right? The concept of eternal conscious torment of the wicked, what we know as eternal burning hell, right? The reason it's a bad idea is because it's not taught in Scripture. Praise the Lord. And from Scripture, we learn what love is by seeing what truth is. Right? Okay, so number one, it's foreign to the Bible, therefore it is wrong. And then I can relax and say, oh good, now I know that God would not be like that. Because his word teaches otherwise. That might be a little too nuanced for you, and you might not care that distinction, but that bugs me sometimes. That we get to say, oh, it's not loving, therefore God wouldn't. Well, we don't get to define, but when God's word says so, now we know what love is. Okay. But also, one of the logical fallacies with eternal burning hell is it's one-size-fits-all nature. You don't even have to be righteous or godly or Christian at all to recognize that some people deserve a little more punishment than others. And we can go through example after example here, but you could think of like, even the world, completely apart from any religious structure, has... You know, not, what, if, what if we had a, a government where every single crime had the exact same punishment? Spitting on the sidewalk and murdering your neighbor both got the same punishment. You don't have to be righteous to say that's messed up. That's bad. That's bad policy. And we're not even good people. We're just, we just know that's bad. But one of the problems with hell is that it's the one size fits all. I don't care if you're, you know... 28-year-old punk who just had a rebellious heart, or if you're Adolf Hitler. Everybody gets the same thing. Like, ah, don't even have to be righteous, you know that's messed up. So, how do you determine? Because before Jesus comes, he's already rendered the verdict of every case, saved or lost, righteous or wicked, right? Okay. So if the verdict has already been determined by Christ without any of us involved, praise the Lord, of who's going to heaven and who's not, who's saved or who's lost, then what's the only thing left to determine? I know you want to say it. I know it feels so foreign to say, degree of punishment. What we call in the secular world, sentencing. I know. I praise the Lord that we get to understand why, because that's what we typically hear, and I agree with it. I just think that answer's not wrong. It's incomplete in this sense. Me knowing why someone is not there is very helpful for my psychology. I appreciate that. But there's still the matter of destruction itself. There's a thing coming, and how do you determine the experience of destruction that the wicked will face. 
And somehow, in God's wisdom, he says, at this phase of the judgment work, I want the redeemed to come sit with me when we do this. Hmm. Now, you might think, you're taking a lot out of Revelation chapter 20, Pastor. You're going way outside of space. You're doing that fence post thing a mile. Okay. Let's go to Scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I told you this middle section would be longer, so don't get mad. Not that you were mad. I was just anticipating. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's read loud and clearly verse 5. I'll read it loud because I've got the microphone. And Anyway, it's what happens. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, judge nothing before what? The time. Well, what time is that? Until the Lord comes. Who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. What is he just saying right there? Therefore, judge nothing before the time. I thought we were supposed to never judge. Let's think with our logical brains again. Why would it be bad even for good people here to judge other people here? No, not because God only judges, but why is God only judging right now? Because he's the only one that can read your Thank you. I only have access to the external. I don't know what you're thinking, hoping, dreaming, feeling. I don't know your character. I can't, I don't have access to the information. But according to this passage, he says, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will bring, to both, bring both to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Now, turn over one more page, chapter 6, two chapters, usually one page in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Now, the people in Corinth were having this weird problem where they were fighting with each other in the church and they couldn't resolve their matters at a church business meeting, so they'd go to the local magistrate to help them sort it out in civil court. And Paul is embarrassed by this. He's like, how are you going to law before unrighteous people when you can't even sort out your own stuff in the church? You should be embarrassed of this, Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, he said, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Why don't you take it up in the church? And then he says in verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge what? The world. Does the Bible teach that the righteous, the saints, will judge the world? Yes. And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? He's writing from frustration. He's like, you guys have imbibed this whole don't judge, don't judge until you don't even know how to be judicious anymore. Friends, that's the Christian world we're living in, by the way. We've swallowed so much judge not that we don't even know how to have discernment anymore. And he's like, look, I'm not saying you condemn people to hell or send them to heaven. That's not your job, but... By their fruits you shall know them, right? By what you can see, you should make some determinations. Be judicious in your thinking. He's like, don't you know? You're going to have a big job up there. You should practice now. The small, do you not know? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more the things that pertain to this life? Psalm 149. We're doing this quickly. But we're going to read the whole psalm, the entirety of the psalm, all nine verses. Psalm 149, 
We're going to start with verse 1, as I mentioned, and notice the tenor of this psalm. It's clearly written from the perspective of the redeemed. Psalm 149 says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song in his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with a dance. Let them sing praises to him with a timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with what? Salvation. So this is clearly written as a praise to God from the perspective of the redeemed. Amen. Verse 5 continues. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Now things got weird. They're singing, they're praising, they're extolling the Lord for his greatness and at the same time there's a sword in their hand. Why? Well, it says in verse 7, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. To execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. If we go back to Revelation 20 now, Notice that the Bible explains this to us also. And I'm getting to the spirit of prophecy, but this is so Bible-based. We'll just continue in verse 7, and then we'll take a break in just a moment. It says, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And that's a reference to the resurrection of the wicked, who he can now deceive, and he's back to his old ways, right? And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for what purpose? To battle. Does it say to gather them for repentance? Nope. And this is one of the sadder passages in all the Bible right here when it says, whose number is as the sand of the sea. So you get the picture. Here's... The resurrection now, the second resurrection, the resurrection of the wicked, of condemnation. And there's Satan standing there, I imagine personating Christ again, saying, You're welcome. But look, they've taken our city. Let's go get them. To gather them together for battle. Verse 9, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now wait a minute. They've been dead for a thousand years. They wake up, gather an army, rush the city, and then they're destroyed. What? Why wake them up at all? Wait, wait, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I'm sorry, I should be clear. I don't ever want you to answer questions. I just like to ask them. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. But I want the Bible to answer the questions, okay? Let's keep going. Now, Skip down to verse 11, right? Because then it talks about, I'm sorry, verse 10 talks about the destruction of the devil, right? The devil who deceives them was cast into the lake of fire. Finally, he's going to get his due, right? And fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We don't have time to talk about it right now. By the way, when the Bible talks about forever, it means forever until it's done. Not without an end, it means forever until the end. 
King David, all, I will sing of the mercy of the Lord forever. And then what happened? He died. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, he is dead and buried and in his grave. <laughs> he is not praising the Lord. It means forever until the end. So the destruction of the wicked takes place at the end of the thousand years. So what was the purpose of that whole deliberation? And the waking them up was the whole purpose. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. And I believe this is talking, again, folding back into that judgment scene. Right? He's giving more detail on that judgment process. Verse 11. Saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. So this is the same one who, when, the, when he returned, the whole heavens broke apart and the wicked ran away. This is that Jesus. And there is found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. Again, a reference to this millennium or thousand year judgment scene. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their what? Works. By the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his own, what? Works. Do you notice that the judgment here is individual? It's not one size fits all. There's a deliberative process. All right, let's take a look at this individual. Let's compare the statute book of life, right, and, and, and the law of God and all the... the, the the government of heaven, the society of angels, and compare that to now we have the thoughts and actions and deep. And he turns, and now this is what I want to close with this section with, is this. Why? 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 Why not just have Jesus do that by himself? Why bring the redeemed into that? And here's my answer, because I don't want guesses, I'm sorry. <laughs> What's unique about the end of the thousand years is this is the only time in the history of the universe when all the sentient created beings, every intelligence ever brought into existence is all together at one time in one place. The righteous are there, the wicked are there, the unfallen who never fell, God is there, everybody's there. And the angels have been, I mean, has God known everything from the very beginning? Sure. So nothing is new for him, right? Have the unfallen angels, like Gabriel and all of his friends, have they been watching this whole great controversy unfold for millennia? Yes, they're very current events. They know what's going on. What about the righteous now, even the redeemed? Have they had an opportunity to see the books? Yes. Who's the one group of people who haven't understood the whole plan yet? The lost. And remember what we started off with? It's just as important to be seen as right as it is to be right. So he assembles all who have ever lived to one time and one place. And each one is judged according to their works. Individualized, personalized sentencing. Because they're all equally lost. 
but there's still a determinative judgment according to their works. Now listen to the comment from the great controversy about this particular moment, this experience. Well, I'll read the, the full paragraph to give you context. During the thousand years between, this is page uh, 660 in the Great Controversy, okay? During the thousand years between the first and the second resurrection, the judgment of the wicked takes place. We've established that from Scripture, okay? So nothing we're going to read in this paragraph is going to be news to us now because we've done the Bible study. The Apostle Paul points to this judgment as an event that follows the second advent, quote, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, when both, when both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Daniel declares that when the Ancient of Days came, quote, judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. We didn't look that one up, but that's Daniel 7, 22. At this time, the righteous reign as kings and priests unto God. That's from Revelation 20. John in the Revelation says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. They shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. That's all again from Revelation 20. It's a little Bible study in this paragraph. Then she makes the final two sentences an explanation. In union with Christ, please note that. He doesn't just say, here's the keys to the thing, I'll be back in a thousand years. Whatever you come up with, I'm good with. No, 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 they're with Jesus this whole time. Jesus is still the judge on the throne, right? But he says, come sit with me as we go through this. In union with Christ, they judge the wicked, comparing their acts with the statute book, the Bible, and deciding every case according to the deeds done in the body. Then the portion which the wicked must suffer is meted out according to their works and it is recorded against their names in the book of death. Let me close with this explanation. Why would Jesus do it this way? Now I'll let you answer some questions. (laughs) Of all the assembled people there on that day, what is unique about the redeemed from all others. They were sinners. Even in a court of civil law that has nothing to do with religious, aren't you supposed to be judged by a jury of your peers? Let me put it more personally. To be clear, I have no intention on being lost. Amen? None. However, if I were to tragically live a life deserving of everlasting death, who would I want determining my destruction? I'll tell you very specifically. I want Jesus there. Amen? And my mom. Why? Because what do I want? (laughs) Yes, I want justice to be done, but I want it to be done as fairly and sweet, as just, you know what I'm saying? Well, I don't know if I was the thing that made her mad at the time. But I know growing up in my house, if I had to be spanked, I want mama doing it. (laughs) 
I want the most sympathetic body of, you know, jurors available. One who has gone through exactly. I know what it's like. By the way, I don't want Gabriel up there. He'd be like, oh, psh, sinner, they throw the book. No, stop it. You, you haven't been down there, man. But these people have. And he's able to say, you've been there. By the way, Jesus was here too, wasn't he? But did he sin? No. He felt the weight of sin, but it was our sin, right? So he's our elder brother. He's the one who relates. He's the member of the God who is God with us and in union with Christ. But he says, come up, sit with me. What would be fair? And this is where my sanctified imagination goes. It could be very wrong, and I'm fine with that. But imagine he, the, the names are rolled out or however the process works, right? And he says, Here's an, uh, there's a sealed envelope for each name. Don't look at it until you've rendered your, you know, sentencing. And you deliberate and you think about what would be, oh, taking all the varying factors, the mitigating things, and okay, come up with a result. He says, this is what you think, and he said, I want you to be the most fair you can be. Don't do an ounce of destruction more than you have to. Be as fair as possible. Okay. Then you do. Then he says, okay, now open the envelope. And you'll see that what he wrote down is exactly what we would have written down. And as I want you to see that my goal in this is to be just and to be merciful. No questions asked. So that, because Revelation says some crazy things in it. So does Isaiah and so does Philippians. You ever notice that it always talks about how every knee shall bow? Not just the righteous knees? Even the wicked. Not out of like a new conversion experience or a changed mind or heart, but from the overwhelming weight of evidence, right? It's just so patently clear that, what does the Bible say? Just and true are your ways, thou king of saints. And then will be fulfilled that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. By the way, I think the person most harmed in this judgment is going to be Jesus himself. When those creatures who he made in his image will look at the fairness of their sentence and say, yeah, that's about right. I'd rather not be than have to be with you. You know, I heard an evangelist say one time, God's going to take everyone to heaven. Comma. <laughs> who would be happy there. Friends, the purpose of this life is to discover if we even want the next life. Because you know Jesus is going to be there the whole time. Like the whole eternity. Just, you know, his law, his ways, his songs, his everything. It's him. And if you notice in that closing scene of the book of Revelation there, when they're assembling for battle, even the wicked want the kingdom. They just don't like the king. Friends, what makes heaven heaven is Jesus. 
I mean, I'm all for the beautiful weather and the shiny streets and the big mansions and stuff, but come on. That's not why we're going. I'd be fine if heaven were cold and rainy, even Michigan weather. (laughs) But if we could be free of Satan, live in communion with Jesus, I'm sure the weather will sort itself out. We need to teach our young people, by the way, that that's what makes heaven, heaven. It's not just this beautiful felts where there's all green grass. <laughs> I'm assuming it's going to be nice, too, beyond that, but come on. That's what this life is for, is to make a decision for Jesus Christ and start living in harmony with his law now, so that when he comes to take us home, it's like going home. We're not done yet, but it's a good time for a quick break. (laughs) Then we'll come back and give you some good news about hell. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.